After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. Uh, we are recording this a little earlier than normal, so hopefully no news uh, broke over the 4th of July weekend before we uh, get this into your, your podcast feeds. Subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, you can find us. Uh, but Joe, as we as we go into uh, this this Fourth of July weekend or come out of it, what, however we want to look at this, uh, you know, th- there is there's college baseball happening around the country, and uh, we have some summer ball uh, content planned over on the website for next week. But today we're not really here to talk about the uh, the summer ball stuff as much. We uh, we're excited to be joined by Oregon State coach Mitch Cannon. And he's going to talk to us about his first year on the job with the Beavers. And uh, among other things, a very insightful interview uh, from, from Mitch Canham. And so we've got, uh, we've got a fair amount of just uh, college baseball talk to, to come at you with uh, here, in, here in early July. Yeah, it continues to, to – college baseball continues to give us no shortage of things to talk about. And we, before we actually hit record talking to, to Coach Canham – we were just making a little small talk with him and we kind of had a similar conversation with him where it just feels like this is never, never ending in terms of the news and not all of it is good news. And we'll, we'll get into some of that a little bit later, you know, that we, and that, that has been the case throughout this entire extended off season, but a lot of it's just been, uh, you know, news about how college baseball is going to work moving forward, either in the short term or in the long term. And, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time projecting what 2021 could look like on the field and, while very little is decided in the way of that yet, I think we're all just kind of waiting and seeing how things go in the fall and in the winter before we, you know, uh, make any firm plans, if you will. But but it has been fun to talk about what that could be. So yeah, we, we continue to roll on. And, you know, you and I had a conversation before we started recording here too about how we could talk about summer ball and we will. It's not like we're just going to ignore summer ball happening, but, you know, we don't feel overly pressured to do so because there has been so much to talk about. So we're, we're pretty... I feel like we're pretty lucky. I get asked a lot, you know, what are you guys writing about these for people who don't follow it as closely, friends of mine, you know, what are you guys been writing about with no games? And I'm like, man, how much time do you have? Because it really has been, really has been pretty busy these days. So, uh, um, and certainly thankful for that and thankful to, uh, you know, we've, we've had a great 
guest lineup. So part of that I have to imagine is just because it's been, you know, no recruiting going on, for example, it's been a little bit easier to, to get the ear of some of these coaches, which has been great. And, uh, you know, Mitch can another one here today. I like to think that everyone we got uh, on the podcast would, uh, would always make time for us. <laughs> they would drop everything. They would, they would get off their, uh, you know, get out of their, their seat at whatever recruiting event they were on and find a quiet place to record with us, no doubt. Uh, absolutely. But it, it has been great, and, and we appreciate them all. I actually tweeted a list of everyone over like the last six weeks or something that, that has come on, and it was, uh, it was a pretty good list. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And we're, uh, we're again, like I said, we're, we're happy to add Mitch Canham to that. Uh, Oregon State, of course, always an interesting team. Uh, you know, and, and that was true again this year with, uh, with, with Canham taking over the program. Uh, uh, of course, Pat Casey, longtime coach of the Beavers, kind of architect of, of Oregon State as a national power, uh, retiring after the 2018 national title, 2019. Pat Bailey was the interim head coach. And then they hired Mitch Canham uh, in June of 2019 after Oregon State's season had ended. And he, he steps into uh, you know, that role this season for the first time a little bit um, down from where Oregon state had been the last few years. Of course, that was going to be pretty natural as you know, it, it would have been very difficult to uh, continue what they had done uh, in 17, 18 and 19, particularly uh, with losing Adley Rutschman. And of course the year before uh, talents like Madrigal and Grenier and Larnick, um, you know, so a little bit of a, of a reset in, in Corvallis, but uh, Christian Chamberlain continued a, a line of impressive Oregon State pitchers. And, you know, while, while he got drafted, Kevin Abel is now going to be coming back. He did not get drafted. And so he'll be back to, to front the rotation there for the Beavers in 21. Of course, Abel is the 2018 freshman of the year, one of the heroes of that national championship team through a shutout in game three of the finals against Arkansas. And, you know, this will be, uh, you know, he, he's been coming off Tommy John surgery. Uh, he'll be well removed from that. And so hopefully we'll get to see a fully healthy Kevin Abel uh, raring to go on opening day of, of next year. So anyway, it's a, it's an interesting time uh, in Corvallis, a lot going on. And, and uh, so we're excited to, to talk with uh, Mitch Canham about all of that and more. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are very excited to be joined by Oregon State coach Mitch Canham. Coach, it sounds like you have a bit of a water balloon situation at your house, but uh, you know how is uh, how is life treating you this in this unprecedented summer? Well, all's going well, I, no, no doubt about it. I've already given you fair warning that I could be attacked by water balloons at any given moment. Um, that was a, a big purchase, not only the fireworks and and s'mores material, but uh, water balloons. And we've been having some really nice weather here. So at any point in time, if, if I'm outside, I can get a barrage of water balloons from the kids. Well, that's, uh, that's one way to pass the time, I suppose, in, in this, uh, this unique time. But you, um, you recently kind of celebrated your first anniversary of, of taking the Oregon State job. Uh, that happened uh, maybe a week or so ago. And, you know, it, you've been on the job for a year. It's obviously been a very strange year uh, in the second half, 
into the season part, but as you look back on your first year uh, as the head coach at Oregon State, just what, what have you learned and, and what, uh, what's that been like for you being back in Corvallis? Well, first, being, being back home is hard to even, even get close to describing how excited we are as a family. Um, you know, taking our suitcases and putting them away so we could never look at them again <laughs> after doing the, the minor league lifestyle for, for so long. It was just constantly, you know, pack the suitcase, get in the car, or jump on the bus or the plane and go, go, go. And now it's, this is the longest. Uh, my wife and I have been in one location since, you know, we, we left high school. And just nonstop moving around. Our kids have both at, at five and seven years old have been in over 30 states each. Um, but we've done it together and we've had tons of fun. We've, we've learned a lot. We've done the homeschooling stuff. Um, it, it brought us really close as a family. And now being here, it, it really is a dream come true. And you feel safe each and every day. The community is tremendous. Um, everyone that we're around cares about one another and, and hold each other accountable, pushes each other to um, do things like have fun and you know you set your goals and you got people around you that are pushing you to become better and better at those uh, values that we all carry each and every day you know this place is uh, what transformed me into the man i am today and i have just endless amounts of gratitude for uh, corvallis and oregon state um, but learning whew, there there hasn't been a day or an hour where I, I haven't felt like I was being um, moved forward in, in mental skills and analytics and life skills, uh, on-field situations, you know, recruiting, um, compliance, you name it. It's just um, a tremendous environment for those that want to have that growth mindset. And you know, coming in and, and getting to know our guys, getting to um, go out and build relationships uh, across the country, well, and even other countries as well. And uh, really, you know, being fortunate with our um, athletic department and our coaches that we have here, the tremendous resources. We spend a lot of time communicating with coaches from other sports and seeing how they operate. I think that's just a great learning opportunity for all of us. And um, very fortunate with the proximity uh, of everyone here in Corvallis as well, that, you know, at any point in time, you can get out and have a conversation and enjoy a meal or, um, you know, just sit down in the backyard over a fire and, and have a great conversation about, about transforming lives and, uh, families. So it, it's, it really is a dream come true. And, um, you know, a tremendous amount of thanks to uh, the people in the Mariners organization and everywhere I've been fortunate enough to play, learn just constant learning along the way. And you, know, you want to have it all figured out, but understanding that it's not going to happen and you just keep learning and building relationships with people. That's, that's why I've always loved this place is it's about uh, building that family and believing in one another and pushing one another 
Um, but we're very, we're very protective of the people that we bring in. So, you know, I, I, I take that to heart when we're going out and recruiting is making sure that, uh, this, these individuals that are going to be beeves, they understand they're going to be beeves for the rest of their lives. And it's the most amazing thing ever. And, um, you know, uh, I know that the, the rest of this community, this, this program, this university, uh, you know, puts that added emphasis on us hey you know it's important who you're bringing in here impacts so much more than just one individual it's it's the sum of uh, of all parts and that's what makes it you know also exciting is we're, we're going out and we're finding future family members you're obviously in a, a unique situation given that your first year on the job ended in the way that it did you you and any other first year head coach in, in 2020 and I'm curious how you use what you learned in just that short window you had the lead up to the season and what you got of the season and kind of synthesize that going into year two so that year two actually feels like a progression versus just a restart of what you were what you had in year one it's just such a unique challenge to me and I'm curious how you and your staff have gone about handling that yeah uh moving moving forward just constant growth you know we learned so much this last year and no doubt it was probably not an easy thing for our student athletes to go through uh with the change right new head coach new pitching coach um you know new athletic trainer uh just you know there's a handful of different movement now we have amazing people here and the program itself the players uh, year in and year out are great at holding one another accountable. Um, but, you know, change can be, change can be difficult for some initially. I remember being, you know, in the minor leagues and you watch a transaction happen where a guy gets moved up or gets moved down or gets released. You know, you have a great group when those next couple of days are pretty difficult. You know, guys are frustrated because they've built strong relationships with those folks around them and change can be difficult as, as a, a man who's gone through uh, parents being separated at a, at a young age. I saw how that impacted uh, my brothers and I and, you know, moving around uh, now we've learned how to respond to uh, adversity or change uh, in, a, in a better way or, or in, in a quicker way as well than let it fester for a long time. Um, but you can start to see, you know, the change happening very rapidly here. Our, our student athletes, we're empowering them to uh, teach, you know, not only for us as coaches to prepare and present and to keep learning, uh, much like a professor would. You know, you're going to teach your class, but you also need to keep doing your, your own independent research and sharing it with the, the rest of the group. Uh, you know, this, this time as the season ended, we've, we've spent plenty of time on Zoom, us as coaches bringing on former uh, beeves, current professional athletes and coaches, uh, people out there in the, in the private sector, just pouring into our guys and sharing wisdom, whether it's, you know, on-field stuff, whether it's analytics, whether it's body language, mental skills. Um, Harvey Martin came on and spoke with our guys as well. We've had uh, a handful of mental skills coaches come on and talk with our guys you know, so we can learn how to breathe, so we can learn how to express gratitude, we can learn how to respond to situations the best way possible. So we're constantly trying to train ourselves that way. But hearing from our student athletes and 
you know, asking them, what was it that you heard? What are some things that you're passionate about learning about? Um, and letting them have that platform to present to us coaches and the rest of the group, I think has been phenomenal. The, the learning curve that we've, we've gone through uh, these past several months and pouring into each other because we understand that there's so much more than just sport that's going on in the world right now. And we're trying to have those open, honest conversations so we can all grow and better appreciate one another and have compassion towards everyone's different situations. I mean, there's student athletes out there right now that are, are working jobs uh, because their family, you know, isn't able to work. They're, 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 you know, stuck at home or jobless and guys are out there uh, fighting for their families as well and trying to keep everyone healthy um, and trying to constantly seek the answers of what's going on and how is this thing going to be resolved and what should I do? But um, a huge encouraging piece. I mean, we're, we're talking about student athletes and especially athletes at Oregon State, they love to compete. So if we weren't going to be competing necessarily on the field, we're going to compete in the classroom. And we broke up into uh, smaller groups and we, we made the last term competitive. And we finished with uh, just under a 3.6 GPA in the classroom, which was amazing to see how these guys went about it. And they're holding each other accountable and getting their assignments done. They're collaborating on, okay, I've taken this class before. You know, this is probably the amount of hours you're looking. This is probably how often you should reach out to your professor. And, um, you know, I recommend using a tutor here, and this is why. And you're seeing that happen and teach one another. So it's not just getting the piece of paper to hang on your wall. It's uh, building the comprehension to build walls. And, uh, you know, we had three, three seniors uh, graduate this year. In the four years, finished their degree, you know, they, they, they played as a beeve here. It was tremendous to see that happen and everyone else be right behind them, supporting them, congratulating them on their accomplishments, and not watching them want to go on and further their education even further with, with the master's or another major. As um, you know, you look ahead with, with all of these players coming back, you also are returning Kevin Abel, um, mm -hmm. who missed the, most of the last couple of years due to injury. Uh, what was that like uh, when you realized he was going to be coming back? And, and what are you excited about seeing uh, in, once he gets back on the mound wearing a Beavers uniform? Yeah, obviously, all of Beaver Nation is excited. Uh, for Kevin to be back, you know, whether it's the, the the fans in the stands, you know, the athletic department or, you know, his peers in the clubhouse, um, you know, Kevin brings so much to the table, not just when he competes. Everyone's seen him compete. You watch the, the highlights and him, you know, winning the, the closing out the national championship game, throwing the complete game and the competitive nature and everything that he does. When he, I've referred to this before, he's a juggernaut when the ball is in his hand, but he is just as much so when he is not holding the baseball. So this last year, even though he wasn't going to be throwing any innings, you watch how he went about his work and his rehab. You watch how he was attentive when others were throwing their bullpens or their flat grounds and looking to, to coach, to encourage. 
Um, there's there's so much more than just the guy who steps on the mound and and, and starts a game. Um, you know his 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 genuine care for others, um, and this goes to his 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 family. It's not just him. It's it's the the people he always surrounds himself with, and uh, you know it's it's infectious. So having guys like him that have come through this program, um, but him being very much different than than any other, as well as is something that continues to bring success here. And I know it was difficult for him, you know, not going out there and being able to throw and and compete in those big games, but he he's also you know very intelligent and he's he's hungry when he when you know the the season ended and draft came and went uh, you could see his his hunger to get out there and compete um, very few people i've been around play catch like him throw their flat grounds like him throw their bullpens like him and there's there's strong intent there and like i said it is infectious and it and it gets the next guy um, right, you know, throwing right next to him, or the guy who's up on the mound right after him. They want the baseball, and they want they want to compete like him. Um, so, you know, I, I'm excited to see you know, the things that he does in every way, shape, or form uh, throughout this next year. One of the guys who really shined for you early on in 2020 and, and had to be disappointed the season ended the way it did to not get to play that out was, was Christian Chamberlain in the rotation and it looked like he had really taken a step forward. What did you see from him early on in the season that allowed to have him succeed at that level? And then also, you know, what are the Royals getting? They snagged him in the fourth round and what are they getting in Christian Chamberlain when he is, uh, when he gets in the system? Well, he's, he's fearless. Right? He's going out there when he pitched in, uh, we traveled out east to, to Mississippi, and, and he took the mound. He's fearless. doesn't matter who's in the box. He's going to attack him. He wants, he wants to shut them all down. Um, you know, you can look at, at size and, say, and, and think one thing, but you watch him throw the baseball, and you watch him in the weight room, and you're like, nope, I want, I want that guy. I want that guy. He's going to go out there and, and attack. And that's what you want to see. It didn't matter if he was starting or relieving. If he had the ball in his hand, he was going to attack the hitter and get our guys um, in the dugout ready to hit. And that, that helps so much of the flow. It helps the offense when a guy goes out there and attacks to get our guys back in there. Our time of possession is extremely important. Um, you know, and you look at the, the pure stuff. Uh, I mean, his his numbers on his on his on his fastball, on his spin, on his breaking ball are tremendous, and you know he's still going to keep growing with his his changeup. Um, and I think you know the, the the Royals are a great organization as well. Um, I know a handful of people in there, and uh, they 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 did their their due diligence, um, making sure they know the guy they're getting and how to best uh, equip him with the the tools and the education to to get better each and every day. So he, he's in a great, he's in a great spot being with the Royals and no doubt, you know, the season continues, you, you're going to see him come out with the electric stuff day in and day out. But you know, that, that small sample size that we got from him in those games was, was real fun to watch. You, you couldn't help it. When he was throwing, you, you didn't, you didn't want to go grab a hot dog. You didn't want to go use the restroom or nothing. You wanted to be glued in your seat and paying attention to what he was doing. 
so now you know you are are looking at a unique summer uh you can't go out to recruit how are you kind of uh going about trying to uh you know continue to to do some recruiting without being able to to go see players i know you guys put together a virtual tour of of goss stadium uh you know just what are what are some things that you're you're doing to you know in this time where where you're not able to to go out and see players yeah that that's you know that's a it's a fun space to navigate because and and doing so doing it the right way being ethical on it you know obviously everyone now has a phone and they're posting videos but the the same same thing applies if if you don't have all the information necessary then don't make the wrong decision and jump to conclusions you got to make sure it's not just it, yes you want to recruit ability but we're very protective of bringing on the the right makeup you know the character guys the guys that are selfless guys that continually do the right thing that pour into their community um that that can overcome a challenge and 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 takes the truth and is able to handle it so a lot of conversations we spend a lot of time um you know whether it's phone calls all of us as coaches are doing it together uh you know making sure that we're we're all touching base because if someone comes here they're not just coming if they're a pitcher they're not just coming to work with coach Dorman. they're also coming to work with coach bailey they're also coming to work with coach gibson they're also coming to work with coach wong they're also coming to work with myself and brad and you know the sum of all parts and i think that's important for all of us to have some kind of interaction with the student athletes and their families. So, you know, there can be times where people feel rushed and you're used to, you know, filling up a, a recruiting class by a certain amount, a certain time frame. And, but I think it's important for us to just be diligent, um, to be patient. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, student athletes and some young student athletes, um, you know, they want to see, they want to see campus. They want to feel the environment. And that's why we put together our, our virtual tour. Uh, they posted it on, on all of our social media outlets. I encourage everyone to take a peek at it. It's really cool. Gives you an idea of the facilities, but it also gives you an idea, you know, for someone who's out of state who can't necessarily travel here right now, they can look at it and say, wow, so if I leave the locker room, I can be in class within a couple minutes. I can be in the kitchen. I can be to the weight room. I can be at my uh, apartment, home, or dorm, you know, within just several minute walk. So understanding the proximity to campus and how beautiful it is here in Corvallis, but there's also that added element of being here and talking with the student athletes, you know, the guys that you're going to be sharing the clubhouse with, all very important pieces to the puzzle. So, you know, we're very fortunate. Um, we do have a lot of, of great connections, people that we really trust, you know, um, here in the Northwest, up and down the West Coast and other parts of the country that, um, you know, as, as we're checking on someone, you know, making sure that we, we do our, our background checks. I, I think it's, it's important, you know, as, as we're out recruiting, um, you know, when we have these conversations to really be sure on our end and for them to really want to be here as well. That way, you know, I hear a lot of people always talking about, well, you know, guys going out there and overdoing it and, and overcommitting. I mean, I just think it's important for us to make sure that we're doing this uh, the ethical way. Obviously, right now with 
um, you know, COVID and not being able to get out and uh, athletes having a hard time going out and playing. I mean, you know, there's and seniors returning so many things, the shortened MLB draft, you know, roster sizes are a bit larger and everyone's going to be in a different boat there, but you also see what's happening with other programs and um, you know, the funding being cut. So tons of space to navigate. I just think it's important that, um, you know, we continue to do things ethically and make sure that we're, um, you know, we have guidelines that we need to stick to with you know, 27 man rosters uh, on scholarship. Uh, obviously, this year got expanded, but also understand, you know, that 11.7 and making sure that we're doing a great job uh, being at that number and that, um, you know, when we commit to someone that, you know, we're sticking with it. And I, I just think that we've done such a great job um, knowing our guys and, um, them really understanding who we are and what our program is about here. So when guys commit to being a Aviv, it's, it's an exciting day. I mean, it's something that we, we take our time and work through with. And when, you know, guys wake up each and every day and they want to be a beef, you know, that is an exciting feeling for them and for their families, for us and our players, you know, last fall, uh, instead of, you know, guys just, you know, sign their NLIs and posting on Twitter. We, we as a, a fam uh, welcomed each of our, our, our student athletes in a, a, as a, as a group, as a family, you know, all of our guys got to Q and AM and they got to get some FaceTime with our guys as well. So that was, that was exciting. We do, we do things together. Family is a pillar of ours. And, you know, with everything that we do, we make sure that it is, um, you know, revolving around that, family feel we would be remiss if we if we uh had mitch cam on the podcast and didn't ask about the o state ballas um <laughs> i think for a certain subset of college baseball fans they they probably remember that pretty prominently back to your run as a player at oregon state um how often have you been asked about that just since coming back to oregon state and then they always say the originals are typically better than the sequels so what did you make of uh you know kind of the remixes and remakes of it for 2020 with your return to the program. Oh man. So, well, I'm glad you're not asking me to, uh, um, sing for you. So that's nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which it's every now and then will happen. Um, I, we had so much fun doing those things. It, it's the, the, the meaning behind it. So when, when I first got here to Oregon state, um, my, my, actually my first day of class, um, we lost my, my mom to a drug addiction and I came home from psychology 201. I got a phone call from my brother and he told me what happened. And it was you know, extremely difficult losing a loved one, losing a loved one under those circumstances, asking a lot of questions, trying to learn more about that to pre prevent that from happening to anyone else. Um, and the, the coaching staff, the community, my, my brothers in the clubhouse, really rallied around me and, and put me in a good spot. And, and my best friend since fifth grade, Ryan, who, uh, you know, made those songs. Um, he was, he encouraged me to, me to start writing, you know, using music. He'd send me instrumentals and say, you know, just start, let, let it out, man. You gotta, you gotta put it, put it on paper. And so I started making music of it and we had a talent show and they said, Hey, uh, 
you freshman guys, uh, you're going to jump under the talent show. You're going to represent baseball and you're going to do the talent show. I said, sweet. So a couple of us got together, made a song, talked about winning it big and winning a national championship. And everyone really liked it. So we recorded it and then they just started catching on. So every year we, we were excited to make this song and, you know, with, uh, with Barney and Ellsbury and, and uh, my close friends back home in Seattle, we, we put it together. And it wasn't just baseball using it. It was, you know, other sports here as well. I remember going out and playing in the Cape or playing in a professional baseball and guys would say, oh, man, I remember that song. And some other schools would be like, yeah, I didn't like how you guys were, were calling us out on it. But I thought it was important for us to, you know, at the time, if it's one thing to think about it, you know, I think I want to win a national championship. And then it's another to elevate and start talking about it, you know, increase that dialogue and, and write about it. And, and then those, those thoughts, those words, those, those, those writings that you're putting on paper, that becomes behavior, right? Or the actions and the actions becomes your behavior. So we had, we basically were building something that was a standard. It was something that we can hold ourselves accountable to. I remember we wrote the, the original one, Coach Casey said, you know, you, you ready for that? You sure you want to put that out there? You ready to back up those words? And it was like, yes, let's do it. Like, why else are we here? You know, to, rather than to, to be the very best, to be champions in everything that we do in life, champions in the classroom, champions when we're eating, champions when we're working out, champions when we're competing on the field. Yes, let's do it. And so, you know, getting back here, making the, the 2020 version last year was, was fun as well. I, uh, I stayed out of that one as far as um, jumping in the studio and recording anything. I let the professionals handle that one. <laughs> but um, it just, you know, another part of the culture is being able to put it out there and then everyone, we wanted everyone to hold us accountable to those standards, which is important. We got uh, one more question here for you. And, you know, you, you mentioned Coach Casey and, and you know, he did so much for that program, meant, meant so much. Uh, and, you know, to you as players and uh, you know, not only just building the program, but I'm sure just developing you guys to have him around and to have Pat Bailey, who has so much experience in the dugout there as well, still with you. How much have those guys helped or, um, you know, are, are you leaning on them for, for advice at times or what, just what's that relationship been like for you? Yeah. Uh, you know, both, both huge mentors in my life. Um, and that's, that's important surround yourself with people that are way smarter than you. You know, and our, my relationship with coach Casey is, is still strong. I still see him quite often. We talk, we, we talk baseball, yeah, but we also talk life and we talk relationships, talk family, um, you know, and how, how he goes about uh, life day in and day out. You know, his passion for, for people is so strong um, and Coach Bailey as well. Coach Bailey is an extremely ethical man. He's very open and honest. He, he cares. He's a, he's a strong man of Christ and um, you know, shares his wisdom daily. And that's something that, uh, you know, not only myself, but all of us uh, as coaches here and um, in the athletic department, our community and our players, we're all very blessed to have someone who cares so much and has so much wisdom. I mean, um, 
I looked at the, I got our registration for the ABCA in the mail the other day and coach Bailey has 35 years straight of being a member of the ABCA. You know, he's won a national title uh, at the division three and division one level. Um, you know, and he's, he's well-respected and connected anywhere he goes across the country. And so for coach case and coach Bailey to be, uh, you know, here involved in, in my life and my family's life, you know, I, extremely grateful. It's something I've, I've said many prayers and thanks, uh, you know, for God putting them uh, in, in my life and my, my wife's life and my kid's life um, because they continue to, you know, share their perspective, share their, their, their time really of sit there and listen and, and put things out there. But um, they're, constant learners as well um you know anyone uh, anytime they speak everyone listens if they go if they go into a room guys, guys like case and bail when they enter a room and they have something to share everyone stops what they're doing and listens and you know any anyone who has any sense about them will do that because they have so much wisdom they have they've seen so much of the game but they've also seen so much in life and and have uh, a true passion for others that's one of you know the, my favorite things you talked to both of those guys about former student athletes that they've they've been around and coached you know they don't talk about their professional careers they talk about who they are as men and and husbands and and fathers and that's what's what's exciting is hearing those kind of things um you know, it's, it's, it's so much more than just baseball and, you know, the analogies that they use, the, the, the storytelling, the, the, the just in-depth look that they have transformed. So, you know, yes, we are extremely fortunate and, um, but I, I encourage anyone who has the opportunity to be around those men, you know, to, to make the most of that time as well. Absolutely. Two, uh, two great guys there. And, you know, at any time they speak at ABCA, um, you know, everyone wants to hear what Case has to say. And I always enjoy talking to, to Coach Bailey as well. Just uh, great people and, uh, you know, great people for, for the Beavers to, to be around. And Coach, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk with us here on the podcast and, and to share, uh, share how, how you're, uh, you know, coping and uh, learning still in this, uh, in this unprecedented summer and spring that we've had here. Well, I, I, I thank you both for having me on, you know, it's, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to represent Oregon state and, and the Beaver family um, to be on here. And, you know, I, I, I wake up every morning with a huge smile on my face, knowing that we're, we're going to be a part of something that is, so phenomenal you know there's a lot of wonderful people out there and we've experienced uh, many different parts of the country and parts of the world um and i know that this place is so dang special and um I'm, i think those guys that have all had part of it you know our alumni group is is so so strong and together that's part of the fun is is being on a a, a text thread with 30 guys that were here the same years as, as myself and talking baseball and talking life and, you know, something that you're part of for the rest of your lives. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to talk about our family here. And, you know, uh, 
prayers go out to everyone um, around the world, across the country, as they're trying to navigate this space. Just keep learning and and keep the faith that um, you know there are great things out there, and let's keep seeking those. Absolutely, uh, a wonderful thought to end this on, and, and uh, I I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, much more profound than anything I would have come up with. So, Coach, we uh, we appreciate it, and we'll look forward to seeing the Beavers. Uh, back on the diamond next next spring. Better believe it. Thanks, guys. Go Beavs. Thank you again to Oregon State coach Mitch Canham for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Joe, uh, obviously very insightful uh, from from Mitch Canham there. Um, you, you can tell very cerebral the way he thinks about baseball and, and his role uh, in coaching the team, just what that means to be head coach at Oregon State. And uh, so – very, you know, impressive just as a, a, a whole body, a, a holistic way of, of looking at things. And I don't know, that was kind of one of the things that stood out to me is just how he approached, you know, the, the shutdown and talked about competing in the classroom instead of on the field. And, you know, while that might not be unique, it was just I, I was impressed with the, the, the holistic view that, that he took there. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know that if it's, it's just because I am the type of person who would respond to this type of leadership or it's something else. I mean, I think probably is a little bit part of it, but, you know, I, I've always kind of been drawn to the coaches that have kind of his demeanor in terms of being, you know, at least when you talk to him, very even keeled. And I, I have to assume this pours over into what happens behind closed doors and the, the locker room and meetings, uh, one-on-one time with players, et cetera, but just a really even keeled guy. I mean, sometimes with, with the coaches that there's nothing wrong with running a little bit hot in a positive way, of course. And, um, you know, there are high, you know, super high energy coaches all over the place. They're just turned up to 11 all the time. And, and, and that can work. Um, but for me personally, I've always been drawn to the coach who's just very even. Um, and, and clearly he is that, and that should not be a surprise given that he came through Oregon state with Pat Casey at the helm, he has kind of taken the baton there uh, in terms of that style of leadership and that way that he approaches his job. Um, and I think it kind of goes beyond his years. Sometimes I forget that he's as young as he is, uh, you know, because so often we see young guys come into jobs like this and really just um, really have it turned up. And I don't know really a better way to put that, but I think you know what I mean there. And, you know, he really has come at it. And some of it maybe is that he had the managerial experience in the minor leagues. I mean, he was a rising star in the pro managing ranks. He was a guy that people thought was going to be a big league manager. And I suppose with trends being what they are these days, he still could. Um, the, the, the move from, you've read about this before, from college coaching to pro coaching is there's not as much of a hard wall there as there used to be. So that is very much still an option for him uh, moving forward if that's something he decides to to do. But you know, he's come into this job um, just with a very um, measured approach and, uh, you know, just a calm demeanor about him. And um, I think that also plays well in, in a place like like Oregon State um, with the types of guys they have at, at Oregon State. And, and I'm interested to see where they go moving forward. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast that I just did not really know what to expect with Oregon State in 2020. And we never really got that answer. 
they had taken their lumps early on. And the last, you know, one of the last things we saw from them, if not the last thing, I, I don't know if they played at midweek that last week of the season, but they got swept by Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara's a good team. I mean, we, we, we like that team, and clearly we like that team still going into 2021. But that was kind of our last impression of them. And they were, you know, there were still questions about who are your difference makers on offense. And then, you know, maybe Alex McGarry ends up being a, a, a dude dude, like a real dude. And, uh, you know, he's now signed, of course, and you liked what you had with Christian Chamberlain, and he's been signed now. And so 2021, I think, has a lot of those same questions because they never got answered in 2020. And then you add on top of it, getting Kevin Abel back, which could go extra. I mean, he could be, he could be, he's got the talent to be a Pac-12 pitcher of the year type of guy. We've seen that in him, but it's probably going to take a little bit of time for him to get back to something feeling like full strength. He's fully healthy now, but certainly by the time he gets back on the mound, he's going to be back at full strength. He's going to have a huge on-ramp to when he returns in 2021, but you know, it just takes pitchers time to kind of shake the rust off and get back into a game feel as opposed to just, you can throw all the simulated games you want. It's just not the same as an actual game. So it might take Abel some time to establish that again. So there's just, I, I think they go into 2021 again, being a team that I'm really eager to learn about uh, and, and don't know what to expect because the, the level of expectation Oregon state is high. We know the talent level there is high. They should be able to compete at a high level in the pac 12. But on the other hand, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't necessarily see that right out of the gate in 2020. So um, I'm certainly going to have my eye on, on what they do moving forward. And I think you were in the same boat with me there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, uh, they're a team that I know people have asked us about, like, why aren't they in the never too early top 25? And uh, well, the short answer is that I, you know, I mean, they, they lost Chamberlain, they lost McGarry from a team that I still wasn't sure what they were. They played a very good schedule. At, at the start of the season, uh, you know, the, the tournament in Arizona that they host in, in surprise was a, was a solid field and they handled it uh, fairly well, I would say. And then, you know, you, you saw them go to, to Mississippi State and you know, that's a, a difficult trip. And, you know, they play UCSB and, you know, I, it, they're all good teams here, but, you know, they went five and nine. And, you know, they went two and two in that, that tournament, which I, I just finally loaded their, their page. I'd forgotten that they actually lost that last game to BYU. I, I thought they went three and one there. No, they went two and two on opening weekend. Then they go one and two in Starkville. No shame in that. They split a home series or split a series at San Diego State. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a team that was still kind of trying to find itself, I felt like. And, um, you know, I think that's still going to be relatively true. They were somewhat younger in 2020 than they will be in 21. You know, when you look at it, they, they were playing a, a good group of, of young players. Um, and, you know, everyone's excited about Kevin Abel coming back, and they should be. That's, that's rightfully excited. Uh, but Kevin Abel just serves to replace Christian Chamberlain. And Christian Chamberlain was outstanding at the, at the front of the rotation. So you hope Abel, uh, you know, just replaces Chamberlain kind of in a one-for-one one deal, but you're still then in the same spot that, that you were otherwise. You're going to need some guys to take a step forward. And, you know, they have talent on the roster. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, I'm just going to kind of wait and see for that to happen. And, you know, I, I think that that can 
but I, I also think that, you know, it's, it's just going to take a little bit to really see what Oregon state has to offer. And, you know, maybe in the fall we'll feel differently if, if they're able to, uh, you know, impress people. But, you know, right now I, I think it's, uh, it's a work in progress and, and it's an understandable work in progress. You know, the, the, the three year stretch from, from 17 to 19, uh, you know, it's very difficult to sustain something like that. And I know that there are some places that do, but, you know, Oregon state, while it is a powerhouse, uh, doesn't have some of the, you know, advantages, particularly when you just look at, you know, like, okay, yeah, Florida does this year in and year out, right? Uh, but, you know, they have all the talent in Florida to play with. You know, Oregon State is, is you know, somewhat limited in that. And, and if you look at, you know, that's not to say good high school baseball isn't being played in Oregon, but they need to go out of state for some of their talent. And, you know, so their recruiting has, has more ups and downs maybe than you might see at some of these other powerhouses. So all of that's to say, I'm interested to see what Oregon state has to offer. I think they take a step forward in 21 from what we saw in 20, but uh, you know, I'm going to, going to be eager to see what that looks like uh, next spring. I, I think the, another, you know, we could have gone in so many different directions with, uh, with Mitch. Joe, you mentioned though, that how young he is, he's the third youngest uh, coach at a power five conference school. Uh, Rob Vaughn, Maryland, and um, Indiana. Jeff Mercer at Indiana are, uh, are the two that are younger than him. So, you know, just to be that young, of a coach at a program like Oregon State is is significant and you know I we, we didn't get a chance really to, to talk about that but I I think that is you know it, I don't know how much of an advantage it is you know maybe it's a significant one maybe it's not but it, it's just not something you see in today's game very often where you have a guy in the early his early to mid 30s taking over a program at the level of an Oregon State uh, it used to be a bit more common. You know, I, there were examples of guys in their 20s, you know, if you go back far enough. But in, in college baseball today, it's not something you typically see. And so I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how they grow from there and, and what advantages uh, are, are lent to that. And, and I think some of the, what you, you see in, you know, him talking about the ways they can recruit and, um, you know, using social media and the fact that they went back to the O-State ball is in, in 2020 with a, you know, an updated version. I, I think some of that is because you have a younger coach. Yeah, that's, um, it's really interesting that, you know, that he, like, that he is young as he is, not just because of the way he carries himself, but also that he's just lived a lot of baseball life, if you will. I mean, it really hasn't been that long ago that he was a member of the Oregon State teams or winning national title. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. And you know, he went from that to, you know, very nearly cracking the big leagues as a catcher to going into coaching at the pro level and kind of, and being there long enough, not all that long, but long enough to establish himself as this rising star in that profession. And now he's the head coach at Oregon State. And that, that feels like it should be about 25 years worth of time. And it just hasn't been. Um, so that's really, really fascinating. It's, it's also an interesting point you bring up about the ages of head coaches, because I've noticed that I've been spending a little more time digging into individual program history because I've been doing these conference stock watch series. Uh, and mostly I'm just paying attention to the last decade, comparing the last five years to the previous five years. But as part of that, I kind of have to go dig a little bit further. And 
I've actually been surprised by how often I see coaches in these individual program histories that are really, really young. And it, it kind of reminded me of the fact that there was a time in college baseball where for a lot of programs, it was just like, Oh, you, you want to coach baseball? Yeah, fine. Okay. You know, it, it was kind of an afterthought in a lot of athletic departments. And, and now to your point, we're at a place in college baseball where most programs are expecting some level of experience and want to see a certain level of pedigree. And, and that means that the coaches are older than they, than they might've otherwise been. Um, and yet in a lot of cases younger, just because I think coaches now, and you mentioned a guy in Jeff Mercer, who I think fits in, into this category where a guy who just thinks differently about the game. Um, I think Jeff Mercer is similar to Mitch Canham in this way, at least that they're both kind of uh, big picture thinkers about programs. And I think with Mercer that gets expressed more in just things like how he builds an offense and what he chooses to focus on offensively. And uh, importantly, what he chooses not to focus on offensively. And so he's kind of a big picture thinker about how you build a roster and how you, uh, you know, what you focus on and recruiting the types of guys he wants and, and not that Canham doesn't do that. It's just, that's not what we're really talking about here today. Um, so that's interesting to me that those two guys are similar in that way. And, and both are, are younger guys. And I think it's those types of guys maybe that get those early opportunities because they're just a little bit of a breath of fresh air, I think, versus what maybe some athletic directors had heard from other candidates or more traditional candidates, older candidates, um, things like that. Yeah. It's uh, it's also just interesting you know, think about how, you know, the path to, to head coaching is different today than, you know, it might have been previously, you know, Canham gets hired out of the minor leagues, um, you know, where he was working, he was already up to double A as a manager at, at his age, That that's extraordinarily young, but because, you know, pro baseball has changed a little bit, you know, that allowed him to advance faster, which kind of puts him in a better position than to take over at Oregon state. And so, you know, everywhere you, you hear in, in all levels of baseball and it's not unique to baseball, obviously the NFL coaching age has been, you know, talked about a lot lately, especially with the success of Sean McVay in LA. Uh, and, and you see it in, in college football as well with like Ryan day and Lincoln Riley taking over at Ohio state and, and Oklahoma uh, from, you know, Urban Meyer and Bob Stoops. So, you know, th- this is just kind of an, a more overall trend throughout sports and, um, you know, younger guys are getting an opportunity and, and we'll see what, what Mitch Canham uh, is, is able to do with that. You know, he's a guy that, that could be at Oregon state for the next 30 years if everything goes right. And, you know, if, if that's what they, they get, you know, that I, they'd obviously be ecstatic about that. So that that is one of the the real advantages is that if this hire, um, you know, and, and the whole experience works, you know, you found a generational coach and coming off of a generational coach and Pat Casey, you can uh, certainly understand why you would, uh, you know, swing for the fences on that. And, um, you know, it, obviously Mitch Cannon came to Oregon State with uh, with this a Pat Casey seal of approval. You, you would have to imagine that. Um, you know, Pat Casey is, is, you know, we, we know that he's fully on board with that. And, um, you know, so if, uh, if, if they can just follow up one, you know, the, the, the greatest coach in program history with another, you know, long time high impact coach, I mean, that that's, that's pretty much the administrator's dream. So it'll be interesting to see where Oregon state goes from here, but I, I do think that, that, you know, 
they have the pieces there uh, that, that are necessary to, to continue uh, the program's development and, and progression. Yeah, just real quickly, they, they definitely have the, the groundwork laid to where they could be one of those programs where you look up on Wikipedia or whatever we are using in society instead of Wikipedia 75 years from now and go like, man, Oregon State is one of those programs. They've only had like four coaches in the last 100 years, one of those, like that you and I stumble upon occasionally. But, but a guy like Mitch Canham, who's young and clearly loves the place and clearly is dedicated to making that program as good as it can be, that's certainly on the table. Absolutely. So we're, I want to stay up in the Northwest, um, less, uh, less good college baseball news earlier. Um, on, uh, you know, by the time you're listening to this, it would have been last week. Boise State announced that it is eliminating its program. They become the third program to be eliminated during you know this this year in the wake of financial crisis and, and the pandemic. Um, joining Furman and Chicago State, Bowling Green also briefly briefly eliminated, reversed. That, that decision was reversed two weeks later and, and Bowling Green is still, um, you know, a division one baseball program today, but Boise state is not. And, and this is really notable because, you know, they only brought this, pro- th- this program was on, was dormant for 40 years. It played its last season in 1980 and was cut. And then in 2017, they announced that they were bringing baseball back. They went through a whole process of bringing baseball back. They brought, you know, players to campus and all the rest of it. And then this year we're playing their first season in 40 years and they played 14 games, went a very impressive nine and five, uh, put a few thousand people in the, in the stands on opening day for their home opener. Uh, they're, they're in Boise in early March, late April or late, uh, Late, late February, early March, they were drawing a bunch of fans to Boise, um, you know, to watch watch baseball. And then just a few months later, the program is no more. And you know, it, it was just very surprising to see everything they went through to bring baseball back. They seemed to be very committed to being successful at baseball. They hired Gary Van Tol, uh, a well-respected guy um, who had had coached played pretty much his entire career in the Northwest, both professionally and collegiately. Uh, And, you know, he had uh, an impressive staff. You know, he talked about that staff on this podcast in December, uh, just how committed the administration had been to help him bring in some of those guys. And, um, and now, you know, they, they just reverse course. They cut wrestling to add baseball. And now they're, you know, again, just three years after that decision, they're cutting baseball and swimming and diving. So it's Boise was hit very hard by this financially. And, and we can tell that because, you know, they, everyone at Boise, all the coaches were required to take furloughs this spring during the shutdown. So, you know, it's not like this financial situation at Boise came out of nowhere. Uh, that was something that, that was known this spring. But again, they they did so much to to restart this program. Uh, it, they weren't just trying to do it on the cheap, or it, it didn't feel like. So for them to then reverse course uh, so quickly has has been surprising to see. 
Yeah, this one, it was disappointing to see any of them. Bowling Green, Furman, Chicago State. I don't mean to short those programs. However, this one made me mad. And not mad at anyone. There's no one to be mad at. And that's actually, in a lot of ways, what's most frustrating about it is there's just, you understand why Boise was put in this situation. You understand why, you know, it's just, we're just all living in, in difficult times in a lot of ways. And that's just the reality. And so there's really no one to be mad at. But I'm, I'm mad, disappointed, I guess, if you want to put it that way, for a number of reasons. One, because to your point, it felt like Boise was really doing this the right way. And they were committed to, and maybe they, they end up having to compromise on some of this stuff. But, I mean, it wasn't that long ago they were talking about building their own stadium with blue turf. And I know the stadium discussion with Boise was a little bit fraught. I mean, it was, it was this, and then it was that, and then it was this, and then it was that. And they really I – don't, I don't know if they really ever totally settled on what exactly it was the, the plan was going to be moving forward. But there were big plans at some point. And – they, you know, even something as simple as the, I, th- I think about their SID, when you and I were setting stuff up with Gary Van Tall to do the podcast last winter, their sports information director, who, for those who don't know, is the, the go-between from a media standpoint from the coaches and players in the media. And so folks like Teddy and I spend a lot of time communicating with these people. And the baseball SID for Boise was, had been spending hours and hours and hours kind of compiling historical content in preparation for this program to launch. And just to interject real quick here, Craig Lawson, who's who Joe's talking about, is also Boise's football SID. And I don't know if you know this, but Boise's pretty good at football. And this was football. all happening during football season when when he was doing this. Because again, Gary was on the podcast and I think I said December earlier and I think it was like right at the end of November actually. We might have published it in December, but it was while Boise was still playing football very actively. Yes. So I think of someone like and I know he would probably say this isn't about him, but I think about all the hours that he put in that are now just kind of, maybe not for naught, because like it was good content in the moment, but I don't know, ultimately, if the program doesn't really end up coming back, was it, you know, what, what good was it, I guess, in, in some way? So I'm frustrated for him. But more than that, I'm, I'm frustrated for uh, the players, some of whom, and we, we talked to, to Van Tal about this, some of these players committed knowing they were going to spend a year and burn a year on campus without any games to play on the promise that they were going to come back and be the first group to play baseball at Boise state since 1980 and 14 games into that it's over. It's just over. And of course, like we see with all of these, there's always talk of, well, there's a, there's, there's rumblings of a group that that wants to put money together to keep this thing together. And um, that is admirable. And I hope they keep at that because you just never know. But on the other hand, early, it looks like maybe, the administration is not so amenable to that. I mean, that's a, I'm sure is a fluid situation. We'll have to see where that goes, but um, certainly uh, it, it doesn't at this point look like it's going to be a Bowling Green situation where the thing just, you know, they flip the switch back on a couple weeks later. Uh, we will hope for the best, but I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, bet on that based on what, what we've seen so far. But I, I just, I can't imagine what it must be like to be one of those kids who said, yeah, I believe in this enough and I want to be at Boise State enough that I'll go spend a year just practicing, not playing anybody. And by the way, there's not even really enough of us to play scrimmages. <laughs> you know, it's not like you can even do inter-squad stuff for the most part. It was a small group of guys. And the promise that they were made, and again, I'm not, I'm not blaming the administration here necessarily, but the, the promise of being able to bring baseball back didn't end up playing out that way. And so they just did that for, 
again, I don't want to say for nothing because I'm sure they made relationships and they advanced as players and hopefully they all find places to, to continue their baseball careers or just stick at Boise state and get a great education. But um, that's just such a bummer. <laughs> I mean, to put it mildly, I could use more colorful language, but that's just really a bummer for those guys. And that's immediately where my mind went because there were a lot of kids who made sacrifices that had other options. I presume that decided they wanted to be a part of what was going on at Boise state and, and the rug got, got pulled on them. So this one, this one, as the kids might say, this one hit different. Um, this, this one hurt a little bit. I, I think that you, Joe, followed this situation a little more closely than I did in the years leading up to the the return. You know, the the ballpark situation there. They there's a Northwest League team in Boise, and they've been trying to build a new stadium. And for a while, the school was partnering with them to, you know, they were going to joint jointly build a new stadium and then that didn't work and finally Boise had like settled on a a parcel of land that they bought and were uh, getting ready to you know construct a ballpark on I wonder if all of those troubles contributed to this Um, just some of the the uncertainty around that no one at Boise has said that but I do, you know, I, I just wonder if maybe they and the Hawks had been able to figure something out ballpark-wise a little faster if they still make the same decision that they made uh, to, to eliminate the program. Uh, yeah, perhaps not. And, of course, we'll never, we'll never know that. Um, you know, um, certainly not, not in the public forum. We'll, we'll never really know that. Um, and maybe because at that point you've got more roots, right? I mean, uh, I think that's part of the, uh, part of the, what was kind of working against Boise here a little bit is that the fact that in some ways, I guess maybe it made it harder to eliminate the program because they'd only just now restarted this thing. But on the other hand, maybe it's just a little bit easier because you're not, um, you're not cutting something that has all this this history behind it. And maybe in some ways that makes it easier and having a ballpark situation, especially, I mean, as, as I'm thinking this through, as I'm talking, maybe you're right. I mean, if they had shovels in the ground for something that was going to be a permanent home of Boise state baseball, whether or not the Northwest league is involved or what, I mean, just shovels in the ground for a new stadium. It's hard to imagine them backing out of that unless they had something worked out to where they had a buyer for it or someone who was going to be able to lease the thing, because that's, that's, that's a level of commitment above and, and beyond what they already had. So maybe you're, maybe you're onto something there and that, and that perhaps something that just seemed like um, kind of a, a frustrating situation that, you know, went from a, a big idea the program had to maybe not being as easy as, as they hoped it would be, went from being an annoyance to perhaps a detriment for its long-term health. Yeah, and again, I, I want to be clear, no one at Boise has said that publicly, but I, I, I just have to wonder if, you know, there there was a stadium if they still make make that same decision because, you know, you look at it and, and you know, it, it just seems more like you have that squared away, it becomes harder to pull the plug. But at the same time, you know, Chicago State poured a lot of money I think it was like $10 million or $2 million, not $10 million. I think they poured like a couple million dollars into a field 10 years ago, and their field looks pretty good. 
and they, they cut the program. And that that's something that the Chicago state community has commented on a bunch of times. Like, why did you spend all this money only to cut the program 10 years later? And I mean, I get it, but 10 years is also a fair amount of time. But, you know, all of these things are interconnected in some ways. And I don't want to be the person that has to make these decisions at all. Um, you know, it's certainly not easy to do. And I don't think they're taken lightly, uh, but still disappointing that, that Boise had the rug pulled out from under it as, as abruptly as it did. Um, that being said, uh, there are actually more programs today in Division One. There are more baseball programs than there were March 12th when the College World Series got canceled. And so that is an important thing to remember is that three programs have been cut the, so far this year, yes, uh, but four teams were just added from Division they're, they're reclassifying from Division Two to Division One, and that all went into effect on July 1st. Uh, so the sport is actually plus one right now. So, uh, you know, I, I don't – that doesn't fix anything, obviously, uh, for anyone that was affected by these other cuts. But if you're wondering about the health of college baseball, uh, you know, back when Paul Maneri was telling Luke Johnson that, he feared a hundred programs could get cut and Hey, Paul might still be right because I actually think next year is going to be a bigger year in terms of cuts. If things don't go as planned this fall and into the winter and next spring, whatever. Um, but right now talk like that certainly seems less dire than it did uh, uh, six weeks ago. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's right. I think there's some level of, we all know, we all know what this game is. We all know that so much of what happens in the trickle down and athletic departments depends on what happens with, with football and for a certain number of schools, basketball, and those are still very much in the air. And so I think you're right. I think, yeah, there's been a hit to, to all schools in some form or fashion in the last few months, but certainly that hit stands to be a lot more profound if we have some disruption the, the very real possibility of some sort of disruption to fall sports, notably, notably football. Um, but the, the, looking at the teams that are, that are transitioning up, I mean, uh, you know, the, the WAC has a couple. The WAC just continues to kind of be this interesting league. I'm looking forward in some ways to writing their stock watch because their membership has just been so interesting <laughs> historically. Um, you know, they've, they've been a league that's kind of historically been a home for the teams that are, uh, a little bit of, of, of misfits. Um, and so that, that goes back to, of course, when WAC dropped football, which kind of left them adrift. And so they've kind of become that um, as a conference. So uh, those are, those are two, you know, it's Tarleton state and, and Dixie state, which, I mean, that tells you a little bit something about the WAC. That's a team in Utah and a team in Texas. So that's, um, you know, that, that tells you something about what the, the, the WAC is currently, currently doing there. But I was, I was a little bit, um, I was surprised when you told me that, that there were more teams. In, the total count, if you will, is actually one up of where it would have been. It would have been otherwise. And um, what a time to be transitioning. You know, your expenses are about to go up and, and you're, you're in the middle of this uh, kind of financial crisis on all, on all sides. But, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll just um, – so far we, it feels like we have kind of avoided the worst uh, predictions about what this could have been like from a baseball standpoint. But I, and by no means do, do I think or do I think most people think we're anywhere near out of the woods when it comes to stuff like this. 
Yeah, and I think the Boise announcement was uh, a good reminder of that because, you know, while Chicago State cut near the end of June, that was something that was initially supposed to happen a month earlier. So we had been a while since any baseball program had been cut. Um, so I think some people might have felt like you might be out of the woods and, and then that happens. So uh, probably a good reminder that it's not over yet. And, you know, we'll see where things go from here. I, it's very rare that programs get cut much into July. My um, guess is Boise was done just in time to take effect. Like the cuts were effective probably. Again, I don't actually know this, but my guess is they were done in a way that the next fiscal year hadn't quite started yet for most places. The new fiscal year begins on July 1 in college sports. That's why those four uh, programs just moved up. Uh, that's why UConn moving to the Big East took effect on July 1st. Uh, so it's rare once the fiscal year calendar gets flipped that a program get cut in the first couple months of a fiscal year. It uh, it can happen. Akron was cut the first time in July, or most recent. Not Akron hasn't been cut again. Akron was cut in July uh, a few years ago. So, you know, it, it, it's possible. This is certainly unprecedented times anyway. So looking at past precedents might not be the most instructive here. Uh, but it, it, th this is theoretically a more certain time in the fiscal calendar. And I think a lot of focus right now is just on how do you get football off the ground and probably a little less on budgets. I, I would think there's probably move their attention but um, you know well that that remains to be seen so I mentioned uh, just then that UConn moving back to the Big East that's a, a move that we knew was happening um, that that is effective for next season they're leaving the American uh, a little further off the radar uh, Purdue Fort Wayne has left the Summit League for the Horizon League Again, effective for uh, for the 21 season. That puts the Summit League uh, in a difficult spot. They need to find a new baseball playing member uh, within the next two years, or their at large or their um, automatic bid to the NCAA tournament uh, would be taken away. And similarly, Bethune Cookman and Florida A&M have announced that in 2022 they're going to leave the MIAC for the SWAC, and those moves. It will take place at the same time North Carolina A&T moves from the MIAC to the Big South, and the three of those teams leaving uh, will leave the MIAC at five teams and, again, in need of a, a team for expansion uh, to retain their automatic bid. So something to, uh, to consider if you're looking at some of the low major leagues. I think the Summit League's plan right now is hopefully to invite St. Thomas uh, from Minnesota, currently in Division Three. Like those plans have kind of been in the works for a while. St. Thomas is expecting to get an NCAA waiver to allow them to move straight from Division Three to Division One, which had not been allowed previously. Uh, where the MIAC goes from here uh, still remains to be seen, but they they have. Uh, another year to to deal with it. Uh, the Summit League doesn't have to deal with it right now either. They you get a two year grace period, uh, but because Purdue Fort Wayne left this year and 
everyone's leaving the MEAC next year, you know, they, their, their timeline is advanced by a year. Uh, so something to watch uh, as, as we move forward. I wrote somewhat extensively about uh, the moves of, of Bethune and FAMU over at BaseballAmerica.com. If you're uh, interested in reading what the effects of them leaving the MEAC for the SWAC will be both for the, or for the schools, for the SWAC, and for the MEAC, uh, took a bit of a dive into that one. Uh, Joe, does any of that realignment talk, uh, to, does any of that grab you? Yeah, actually, uh, a few things there. One that is, I think, um, a really positive thing, and that's uh, UConn of the Big East, more on that in a second. But I think the thing about the MEAC and the Summit League and the Horizon, even with Purdue-Fort Wayne moving to the Horizon, I think those are three leagues that especially if – now, I guess it's worth noting that – those leagues aren't as tied to football revenue as other smaller leagues are. Now it's not to say those, those programs in those leagues don't have football, but you look at the summit league and it's schools like the Dakotas, North Dakota state and South Dakota state, those schools very much care about football. They're just members of the Missouri Valley football conference. So it gets a little bit convoluted there, but so those schools actually do care a lot about football and that matters to them but less so certainly than other schools where the membership all plays football and all plays in the same league together, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if you go into a really uncertain academic year, which is what we have coming here, those are three leagues I think that are really just kind of in, and I don't mean to be overly dramatic here, but I don't think I am that they're just kind of in like a little bit of survival mode and to have to have shuffling conference membership is not an ideal thing to have going on right now. I mean, the MEAC certainly, I think, is the the most in that boat with kind of trying to figure out, well, where do we go from here? Because they have some philosophical debates to have about, that is it a, a league that has been made up of historically black colleges and universities. Do they, if they look to expand again, do they look to HBCUs at lower levels? Um, that could obviously not be the easiest thing in the world, just given that, um, you know, obviously you're pulling from a smaller pool when you look at HBCUs. And also there's a pretty healthy ecosystem of HBCUs at the Division II level that are probably fairly happy just being at the Division II level and aren't ready to necessarily move up. So there's that. Um, do they want to open up to just other colleges and universities that aren't HBCUs? That's a philosophical question. I think they'll have to answer and decide how they want to approach it. Um, and then you talk about the Summit League. Now, they, they do have the quick fix with St. Thomas coming up, and it, it looks like that is on track to happen. Uh, by the way, I think I tweeted about this when this first started kind of coming down the pike, that uh, St. Thomas, if that move happens, will have one of the more unique uh, ballparks in Division One. I. I would encourage uh, folks, uh, if you're not driving, to Google uh, St. Thomas and make sure you do St. Thomas in Minnesota, because there's also a St. Thomas in Florida. And uh, St. Thomas in Texas, as a matter of fact. Um, this is in Minnesota. Uh, the center field in their ballpark is something absurd, like 440 or 50 or 60 feet away. It's like a polo grounds type situation. Uh, so that is, would be uh, incredible to be able to see that in Division One baseball. Now, whether they would decide if they were a Division One now, we, we maybe move the fin centers, I don't know. But for right now, that's what it is. But So the Summit League gets a little bit of a reprieve with that. Um, but what happens if, College football realignment comes and North Dakota State decides they want to go up to FBS, which is something at this point they've kind of resisted doing. But if they move up to FBS, most FBS conferences are really only looking to have you move if you're going to play all sports in that conference. So the Summit League is a league that 
you know, unless they're able to bring in some reclassifying teams and if the economy really continues to sputter, it's less likely that we're going to see more reclassifying teams, I think. That makes the pool a little bit smaller to pull from. So if you're a conference like the Summit that's sitting there on six teams and or even the Horizon now will have seven, but the same thing is true of the Horizon if they have teams leave from that league, which they had had. I'm actually working on their stock watch right now. They've had quite a bit of, of movement in their membership. And the, the, so those are just really tenuous situations because these schools are always looking for a move up. They're always looking for the, the league that's going to make them more competitive, make them more financially viable. And that leaves these types of leagues vulnerable. And if we're looking at a smaller pool of teams that are looking to make that move into Division One, to be a lower end conference in Division One is just a really tenuous place to be in general, but especially in these times. And that's where my mind goes with those moves. Uh, the, the thing, the, before we get to you, Con, the yep. thing about the Summit League, too, is that they've already shown that they don't really care about the baseball situation because you know, they've known that Purdue-Fort Wayne was leaving. They're replacing them. That not, they're not truly replacing them with St. Thomas. St. Thomas is almost something completely different. They went out and got Missouri-Kansas City. Uh, they're entering the conference. They do not play baseball. Correct. Um, and so – you know, the, the Summit League has nine members as it stands now. St. Thomas would be its 10th, um, but only five of them play baseball. So you're looking at four schools in the conference that really don't care uh, what's going on in baseball. And, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's a tricky situation for them, uh, you know, when, when you consider all of that. Uh, and I don't know what the – what the right answer for, for any of them is. I don't know if the right answer is for the Summit League to do what the Big big Sky has done and just quit at baseball and tell those schools go find somewhere else to play. I don't know if that's it, but right now they're doing like even less than the bare minimum, I would say, to uh, to, to do anything about, about baseball. And uh, you know, that's really to the detriment of all of those teams. Uh, which is unfortunate because, I mean, it's not – Oral Roberts is who everyone thinks of when they think of, about the Summit League. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, Nebraska-Omaha, um, you know, the South Dakota and North Dakota State both have, you know, some baseball tradition. And, you know, it, it's just the, the conference does not seem to care one bit about the sport right now. And uh, that's really unfortunate to see. Yeah, I, I mean, I know I'm the, the small mid-major and small conference honk on the, on the podcast, so obviously this would come from me, but I think people look at Oral Roberts dominating that conference and think, like, that everyone else is, is uh, really bad. And don't be wrong, like, there are years when it's, it's fairly rough, but the, the baseball there outside of Oral Roberts is, is better than most think it is, uh, to be honest. South Dakota State's more competitive than, than people realize, and, of course, Omaha's improved quite a bit. That's a good point, though. I mean, from a baseball standpoint, they kind of get left out in the cold because they have so many non-baseball playing members in the Summit League. And is the Summit going to go from, if they lose another, are they going to go back up to nine just to make six baseball programs or whatever the numbers are? Uh, maybe not, <laughs> you know, so that's a, that's a really good point. That's something I'm not really uh, considered that way. But the Yukon the point is just that, and I think as I move towards doing the Big East Stock Watch, I think that one's actually one of the last ones I have scheduled. I, I think I, I'm looking at writing about this a little bit longer, but uh, I think UConn really does change the complexion of the Big East. I, I think the Big East is a conference that's been on the uh, on the come up from a baseball standpoint for a while now. Um, when you look at what Creighton does historically and also Creighton's high-end potential, we saw that last year with what they can do. We know what St. John's is about. Xavier 
has been a really solid program for a long time now. Um, we'll have to see if that kind of continues. You know, Guggen's moved across town to UC. Uh, he was kind of the guy who was behind Xavier being this really crazy good postseason team. They seemed like they would always overachieve in, in the tournament. You know, Seton Hall's had quite a bit of talent come through there. Now you add UConn into the mix. You know, the Big East is already a league that if St. John's is really good or if Creighton is really good, toys with being a two-bid league from time to time. Having UConn is only going to increase that. And it's really a win-win when you consider that for UConn, it's going to make the travel a lot easier. It's going to level the playing field conference-wide in terms of weather, things like that. In terms of, you know, they're recruiting the same types of players that a lot of these, and a better version of those types of players than the other schools in the Big East are recruiting. Um, I think it's just really going to be, I don't think it's going to really hurt UConn um, all that much, to be honest. I still think they can achieve what they've been achieving um, in the American, in the Big East. And we know that because they did it when they were in the Big East before this. Uh, but I also think it's great for the Big East. I think it makes them a more competitive conference. It makes them a more viable two-bid league uh, more often than they are now. And now they they do toy with that more often than you might think, considering that it is the Big East and also that it's only right now a seven-team and will be an eight-team conference. Yeah, I'm interested to see uh, how much UConn's success continues here. I I mean, there's going to continue to be a good program. We've talked before on this podcast, though, about UConn being an RPI darling year in and year out. And at least I think we've talked on the podcast. Joe and I have had these discussions. Uh, that was definitely boosted by the fact that they played in the American with you know, Houston and the Florida schools and East Carolina and Tulane and, you know, everyone else in the American that, you know, I mean, most of, almost every American team every year is a top 100 RPI team. In the Big East, you certainly have some of those high-end RPIs, but, you know, you also have a much worse bottom of the league right now. And I would say generally the, the Big East as it's been has been about, you know, five schools that are really seem to be in on baseball and then a couple schools that aren't so in on baseball. And I'll leave it to you to look at the Big East standings to figure out which schools fall in which camps. Obviously adding UConn adds another team in the we really care about baseball camp. They are going to open a new ballpark uh, next year. was supposed to open this year, but they'll open that next year. Uh, it looks fantastic. That's been a long time coming for UConn. It's a big step. Uh, so that's really going to be beneficial to them. But I'm going to be interested to see like how much of an RPI hit they take by not playing some of the American teams that they, they had been playing. Now, maybe they make up for it by scheduling slightly more aggressively. They're generally a pretty aggressive scheduler, but they're also not, there's room for improvement if they want it in the non-conference schedule early on. They've kind of been a team that I feel like usually schedules one team that's really good, like a Louisville, uh, and then just kind of RPI hunts for like good mid-major, good Southern mid-majors they, they can play at for the, the first month of the season. Well, if they make it where they look around and say, well, okay, we need to do a little bit better, they can find a little bit better series if they want them. So I don't know. I'll be interested to see what happens RPI-wise, but it's a huge win for the Big East. I think it's massive for the Big East because – you know, you throw UConn back in this conference with St. John's, with Creighton, with Xavier, uh, and Seton Hall. That's really big. Butler has been 
you know, since they joined the Big East, they've really been trying to get better. And I, I think this is true of Xavier as well. They just had um, maybe a little bit better of a head start than Butler did. And it definitely paid off uh, for them in, in the Big East tournament. But, you know, Butler coming from the Horizon League, which, you know, is what it is in baseball, joining the Big East, they needed to make investments and the program to make the progression and, and they've been making those under Dave Schrage. And so, you know, hopefully the Bulldogs continue to make those and just continue to make the, the entire conference uh, more competitive. I, I think it has pretty significant potential. It's not going to be the basketball big East, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not going to be that, that kind of league, but I, I, I think it can be a really good league going forward. And, and I think it has a chance like you're saying, Joe, to to really consistently be a two bid league instead of be a league where it's like, well, there's definitely a one bid league, but like they might get a second, like they're where, where they're like a bubble two bid league. I think they could now potentially be a solid two bid league. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I um, and I, I think that's hemming and hawing here, but I just. To, Put it just the right way but I think that's one of those deals where because of some of the um, the dynamics of the conference are such that it was a smaller conference that and you typically had a couple teams at the bottom of the conference that were struggling from an RPI standpoint even if their teams were improved over what they'd been in previous years the RPI was just is what it is and I think sometimes that would hamper the chances that they could get an extra team in. And we saw there were a couple of years where St. John's just got in under the wire with RPIs like 50 something. And um, those were deserving teams, but that was kind of a high wire act. And so if nothing else, I think UConn coming in will uh, smooth out the conference a little bit, if you will, will kind of extend the number of teams that, that won't be necessarily uh, RPI anchors for the teams that are really competing for postseason birds. So if you're, if you're Creighton, if you're St. John's in particular, you're really excited to have UConn back in the conference. I think all of that is is definitely true. So we'll be excited to see what that looks like uh, in 2021 and, you know, maybe more in like 2022 since scheduling in the Big East and the A-10 and CAA is confusing for next year. Well, they're playing more of a pod system than a true conference system, but we'll see where that that shakes out. Uh, at some point, uh, and and we'll be, uh, be be very interested to see what UConn's long-term trajectory is in, in the Big East at, for for baseball. Obviously, they didn't make the move with baseball in mind; they made it with basketball in mind, uh, deservedly so, I suppose. Uh, but we'll we'll see what kind of effects it has uh, in this sport. So that's going to do it for us here on the Baseball America College Podcast today. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting apps, rate, review. We really appreciate uh, everyone who takes the time to do that. It, it's, uh, it's very helpful. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And, you know, during the off season, we're still uh, rolling out plenty of content over at baseballamerica.com. Like I mentioned, we'll have some summer ball stuff. Uh, this week, Joe's Stockwatch series, as he referenced a couple times here, is, is continuing. He's uh, you know, got, got a couple more of those lined up uh, for this week. So I'd encourage you uh, to check all of that out over on the website. We are back down to once a week for now in the offseason. We're continuing to evaluate what our 
full podcasting schedule will look like going forward. But for now, uh, look for us once a week. But again, if you are subscribed, you don't have to worry about whether we're once or twice a week. You just have to look at your podcasting app and it'll go right there uh, to your phone. So uh, we'll, we'll be back here next week on the Baseball America College podcast with another great guest. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll be excited to, to talk with you then. Thank you again to Oregon State coach Mitch Canham. Uh, for Joe, I've been Teddy. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College podcast.